How's everybody doing? Last week, best week. Are you ready? Uh, so remind you what we've been talking about. We have been talking about uh, how to change the world. Um, and, uh, and, and in reality, the, the means by which God has called us uh, to, to, to live as his people in the midst of the world, the means by which God has called us uh, to fulfill the Great Commission, to see the nations, the cultures, disciples, um, to Jesus, become obedient to Jesus, are profoundly simple. Um, and yet, um, we have to come to terms with the fact of, of the reality and the weight and the glory of what God has called us to in this world. So we spend a bunch of time talking about that each and every week. So I just remind you of that. Um, the, the wildness of what happens as Jesus stands on a hilltop uh, with his disciples. Um, one of whom is gone and betrayed him. One of whom uh, betrayed him the night of his uh, denied him. Um, and yet, in the face of all that had transpired in the previous few days and weeks, um, Jesus then stands with his disciples and commissions them uh, to, to, to make all of the nations Christian, to disciple the nations. It's a wild commission. It's a wild commission, and yet we sit here on the other side of the world, um, largely as a result of uh, the um, yeast-like work of the church over centuries. Um, God has called us to that same yeast-like work in the midst of our cultures. Uh, so week one, um, and all of everything that we've talked about goes back again and again and again to week one. Uh, we talked about being a good egg. Um, what does it mean to just simply be a good Christian? A Christian who lives in line with um, believing, grounded in, rooted in the gospel, trusting in the gospel. And as a result of trusting in the work of Jesus on our behalf, we are transformed by his spirit um, to be people who pay our bills. Uh, to be people who are decent neighbors, make good cookies for our neighbors, be the kind of people that show up to work on time, be the kind of people that love our kids, be the kind of people who in um, the simplest ways imaginable um, simply live out our lives as men and women in the world um, of lives of integrity and ultimately lives of faith, faith that is grounded in um, the, uh, the work of Jesus. Um, the, the second week... We talked about covenantalness, like that we, we should be bound together. So we talked about how the fact that our um, culture has done a masterful job of treating us that we are uh, treating us as kind of atomistic, isolated individuals, um, and then kind of greased the marbles, if you will, um, with sexual uh, the ease of sexual um, fulfillment or sexual lust. And, uh, and that, that then has turned this society into this kind of atomistic, separated, um, isolated individualism uh, with uh, shame kind of greasing the skids, as it will, so that we are easy, easily manipulated, easily shaped, easily um, kind of steered by tyranny, steered by evil, steered by um, evil and secular philosophies uh, that would corrupt us, corrupt our children. Um, and that the answer to that is covenant. The answer to that is that God has bound us together in families that are covenantal. He's also bound us together in the church as covenant and as belonging to one another. Um, and so that God builds structures in the midst of a society um, that are then able to resist um, wickedness. They're able to re resist unrighteousness. They're able to resist secularism. They're able to resist uh, tyranny. Last week, uh, we talked about the centrality of worship. Um, that, that our weekly gathering on the Sabbath day, worshiping the presence of God, <coughs> renew our covenant with God, becomes kind of the, uh, 
It becomes the engine that drives everything else about the Christian life. Um, we gather here on Sundays, consecrating ourselves to God. Um, we, we gather in this place being reminded that in Jesus Christ our sins are forgiven. And we gather in this place commissioned by God, instructed by God um, through his word as he then sends us out. And we do that as then that then gives shape to all of those covenantal structures. It gives shape to um, our just normal Christian life living as uh, good eggs in the midst of the world. Um, and then lastly, what it gives shape to today um, as we talk about the nature of work and how work fits into um, our calling as Christians. Um, and it's really, really important that you keep last week in mind um, as we move into our discussion about work. Um, your work life is what you do on Monday, whatever it is that you do. If you're picking Cheerios up off the floor that your uh, two-year-old likes to throw there, um, or you are serving coffee at a coffee shop, or you are working on spreadsheets and weird investment plans. Um, whatever it is that you do, all of it, it is not some separate thing. It's not some uh, secular reality. It's, it's the necessary evil of our lives. And the real thing that we're trying to do is what we do on Sundays. It's not how God has designed the world to work. It's not how God has designed your work life to work. Um, and it, it's all supposed to go together. We're going to see that today in a text that we're going to spend some time in. Um, but I first want to address two different kind of rather pernicious um, understandings of work that I've found very, very common among Christians. And, uh, and it's... it's uh, both of them will cause you to stumble when you begin, if you try to begin thinking biblically about the nature of our work. Um, the first one, and definitely prominent in a city like Denver, and definitely prominent among you terrible millennials. <laughs> <clears throat> it's work as personal fulfillment. Um, the idea that is the root of this um, both of these, by the way, have an element of truth to them, but they've been, um, that truth has been largely covered over by the dominant of dominance of falsehood in uh, both of these paradigms. And um, the first one is that your work is meant to be um, the place where you find personal fulfillment, where you find absolute satisfaction. Um, uh, the, 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 your, work, your work is meant to be kind of a... Um, an extension of and a declaration of your own personal individuality. Um, so this is uh, Instagram. This is why so many social, oddly enough, so many social causes are taken up by uh, corporate companies. Like why are they doing all these things? Well, they recognize that like, there is something in the water of our day and age that says that work is not primarily about work. It's not primarily about producing a good product. Um, it's not primarily about um, fulfilling a duty faithfully. Um, day in and day out, that your work is, is, should be more meaningful than that. It should make you feel something um, fulfilled. You should understand the meaning of your work. Um, this comes up in a couple different ways. Uh, this um, constant searching for the perfect job and the perfect company that fits the personality and the aesthetic that you'd like to put forward to the world. And then secondly, it comes up in conversations I have with people all the time who simply can't find any meaning in their work. Um, they talk about the, the emptiness of the work they're doing. Um, they're doing a normal job. They're making pipes. Oh, 
I get no personal fulfillment out of this. I need to find a new job. And the idea underneath all of that is not that they're doing anything illegal, not that they're doing anything unethical, not that they're doing anything immoral. They're not being asked to kind of undermine basic convictions about the world and about God and about any of that stuff. They just look at their job, their day in and day out, how they make money, and they say, I don't see any meaning in it. And therefore, the problem must be the job. So I should go find a different job where I can find a lot of personal fulfillment and meaning. That is the millennials' pervasive issue. Okay? On the other hand, um, and this tends to come from older Christians, is they assume that the teaching of Genesis 3 is that work is a curse. So the idea is, um, the only reason you have to work Stare at a computer screen all day, pick up those Cheerios on the ground, although Cheerios might be an aspect of the curse. Um, <laughs> the only reason you have to uh, get tired and get blisters on your hand and calluses on your fingers, and the reason why work is work is because we are under the curse of sin. And if sin wasn't there, we would just get to chill all day. Play our harps, float on the clouds, relax. Uh, this creates kind of a weird pattern of life, right? So work becomes, the goal of work simply becomes rest. The goal of work simply becomes play. Work is the necessary evil, the necessary thing that you have to do day in and day out so that you can get to the real meaning of life, which is skiing or snowboarding or hiking 14ers, which is truly vague work. Um, <laughs> actual meaningful work that they're doing on Friday until 2, and then they go and they do empty work like skiing. <laughs> um, but the real meaning that we give it is the fun stuff, the recreation, the relaxation, the rest. That's the meaning, the goal of our lives. Um, and we imagine heaven to be this endless time of recreation and rest, watching Netflix, singing David Crowder songs. He's kind of old. That dates me. <laughs> singing. I don't know who the new thing is. So, singing the new things, chilling out, relaxing, maybe going blazing boys, and the heavens. Um, but the goal is not work. So work is the necessary evil. It gets us to the real stuff, the really good stuff, which is recreation and rest. Um, and therefore, we see all of life as largely marked by this curse called work. And oh, if we can just get to heaven kick back on our heavenly lazy boys and play Pong on the old Ataris that they'll have there and sing good rock music. So that becomes kind of the model um, which then infects and shapes how we think about work. So you're going to work on Monday and if you have a really good attitude, you think, no, I hate this. It's boring. Um, but I'm going to do it because it will get me to Friday. And my boss isn't looking, I can leave early on Friday and get to the ski slopes at 2, ski all day, stay in my friend's cabin, ski all day Saturday. And that kind of begins to shape our attitudes and our postures towards work. Um, so on the one hand, you have work as kind of personal fulfillment, personal statement about my nature and my value. Um, and so it becomes a social cause, it becomes 
Um, this thing that I, I feel like I must find personal satisfaction and meaning in the work that I'm doing. That becomes the driving force. And on the other hand, you have work is a curse. So I'll put up with whatever I need to put up with, make as much money as I can, and look forward to the day when this curse is taken away and I don't have to work anymore. Both of those are wrong. Okay? Great. End of talk. Uh, if you turn with me to Colossians 3. Someone, a loud voice, not reading a weird translation. You can interpret that however you want. We'll read for us. Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24. I got it. Yes. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Okay, so foundational um, to the biblical understanding of the nature of work is that you were made to do work. It's not a result of the fall. It's not a result of the, kid, uh, of the curse. I don't even think it's temporal. I think there's all kinds of indications in Scripture that we will have so much work to do in the new creation. Um, I joke one time that uh, <laughs> Pastor Wilson said, I can just imagine on the last day, the Lord looking at me and saying, I want you to grow turnips on Jupiter. And his job will be over the next few millennia to figure out how to grow turnips on J Jupiter. In other words, work is actually foundational to who we are. Like, if you go back, work enters the, the narrative of the world and what it means to be human, but not after the fall, but prior to the fall. We're put on earth to, and, and placed in a garden to work it and to keep it. To be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth with the image of God. Um, and then the means by which that's to happen, beyond the, the covenant of the family, is we put our hands in the soil and take the that the resources that God has created and cause them to be fruitful. To build cultures, to grow grapes, to turn grapes into wine, to figure out how to take sand and turn it into bottles and put the grape, the wine into the bottles and figure out how to sell it. Like there is um, a call that's intrinsic to what it means to be men and women that we are called to work, to labor. Um, to work in such a way that you should go to bed tired every night. That, that exhaustion, that tiredness at the end of the day or at the end of the week is not the result of, of a curse. It's the result of what you were made to do. There should be a kind of satisfaction in going to bed tired at night, that you've done a good job, that you've done your work. So the work here is not as a result of sin. You look at this. Your work, all of your work, is done as unto the Lord. This is in the middle of uh, Paul beginning to address um, how does the gospel, how does the Lordship of Jesus begin to shape uh, certain um, social relationships. He begins uh, talking about the family. He moves on and then he talks specifically um, about work and our work relationships and relationships between slaves and masters, servants and, and, and their bosses. 
So you go to work every day, and your job is not the result of sin. It's not supposed to be the center of the place that you find your absolute deepest meaning in life. It is a set of duties that God has given to you every single day that you're to fulfill because God is the one who's given them to you. And those duties might be really fun. They don't usually pay as well. And those duties might be sometimes miserable. They maybe do pay better. But at the heart of it is you and I were made to work. We're made to go to bed tired. We're made um, to use our minds, to use our hands. And some of that work earns money in our society. Some of that work doesn't earn money in our society. But all of us should approach whatever we're doing day in and day out, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, or you're, or, or, or you're going off to work in the oil fields, or you're going to sell pipe. See, that's why I thought of a pipe, kind of, sort of. Josh is related to pipe somehow. Um, <laughs> oil pipes. Um, going to deal with oil stuff. Uh, you pipes. Um, so many pipes in this room. And uh, like you, you're going to do that work as unto God. And, and, and whether you find personal, social meaning in it or not is irrelevant. The, the, the meaning that you should find in it, in it is when you wake up on Monday, whether you're, you're tending to your, your two-year-old, again, throwing things, uh, or not throwing things. Maybe they're wonderful, peaceful children. Um, or you're going to, to, to sell oil rig equipment, or you're going to make coffee, or you're going to teach a group of fourth graders, whatever you're doing, the fulfillment you're meant to find in it is God has given me this work today. And so I work for Him. I do this work as skillfully, with as much integrity, and as much earnestness as I can, because God is my employer. God has given me this task, and, and this is the task that God has called me to as a man, as a woman, and it's right in front of me right now. There's the meaning of your work, and therefore because of that understanding, work is not a curse. Actually, it's quite the opposite. It's a blessing. It's a gift. The curse in Genesis 3 is not work. It's that the work would be hard. That the work wouldn't be easily fruitful. That, that um, when you go to do something, um, the, the created order won't just respond however you want it to. Because we've been corrupted by sin, because our desire has been corrupted by sin, God, actually in his mercy, curses the ground. Curses the ground so that the world won't respond easily to the sinful desires and motives of men and women. So the very first thing I want us to establish is just this correction see that work is a gift from God. The work is, is, is not a result of the fall. Work is not something you get, you get out of eventually. Work is a, a, a part of the intrinsic way that God has designed human beings to function in the world. And it's given to you by God. Before I go on to my second and final point, any questions about work? We'll talk about that. I mean, it'd be great if you did have questions, but move on. I guess the last thing I'll say about work explicitly. Oh, he has a question. Yes. Yes. Is work just our nine to five, or what is work? Yeah.
Yeah, I think so. Work takes on different forms, and it takes on different forms in everybody's life. Um, so, so there's lots of work that you have. There's lots of work that I have. So um, I work a job most days that starts early and ends sometimes late uh, um, in terms of my vocational role as a pastor. Um, but then I also have work to do as a father. I have work to do as a husband. Um, I listened to a speaker years ago. It's such a helpful metaphor for me. Um, he was a pastor, worked at a church that had an office and kind of traditional setup. We don't have, we don't have that. And he'd go to the office and then he'd come home every day around six. And on the way home, he'd pull over and he would take a baseball cap that he kept in his car and he would put it on um, and he would pray and he would drive the rest of the way home. And it was his way of reminding himself that he's not going home just to rest. He's going home now to do his second job as father and husband. Um, so he said his tendency was, prior to like picking up that habit, was he would just drive home, you know, lay down on the couch, and then expect everything around him to, to be peaceful. And then when the kids had homework questions or the three-year-old dove off the top of the couch onto his gut, um, he would be very annoyed. Uh, when his wife wanted help with dinner because he was having trouble with something, he would get really annoyed. And he realized, like, this did not reward. In fact, that God had given him this vocation in addition to being a pastor. He was also a father and husband, and those vocations involved work, involved labor. Um, and he needed to fulfill those before the Lord. So he started pulling over, put on his, he said, I would take off. I'm not just a pastor right now, now I'm dad, now I'm a husband. And I'm going home to do that labor, that work as well. So I think work as a concept includes all of the tasks, all of the responsibilities that God's put in our plate to do. And you should do all of them as unto the Lord. So the last thing I'll mention by way of work is to go back to the concept of worship. I've been reminded of this even in the text that we're going to be looking at uh, later this morning in the sermon. Um, at the heart of what worship is, we'll gather week in and week out, is the idea of consecration. So when we talked last week in our sermon that there are three basic offerings um, that kind of mark <coughs> covenantal worship in the presence of God. The very first of those is the burnt offering, the offering of consecration. And in that, the worshiper um, is presenting themselves as I belong wholly and completely to you. I'm yours, God. We go to the guilt offering, we go to the peace offering. Um, but, but that first that first offering kind of marks the note or the tone of the rest of worship. And therefore should mark the very nature and orientation you have in all of your work. That when you go to your job on Monday, when you get up with the four-year-old um, who's loud in the morning, but when you go home, husbands, at the end of the day to your wives, um, wives, when you uh, interact with your husband at the end of the day, um, the, the, the constant reminder should be at the heart of all of those interactions and all of that work and all of that labor and all of those sales calls and all of that carpentry and all of it that I, believe, I belong wholly and completely to, my, to the living God. I'm His. Therefore, this work that I'm about to do, this call I'm about to make, this discipline I'm about to execute, this frustrating conversation, this counsel, but whatever the thing is that I'm about to offer and do, 
belongs wholly and completely to the Lord. It belongs to Him. And if that can start to become for us a conscious thought, um, that we can begin to tie together in our everyday lives, in our parenting, in our marriages, um, in the work that you, you may or may not earn money doing week in and week out. If we can tie together consciously the idea that I presented myself before the Lord on a Sunday with the people of God, confessing in that gathering that I'm His. I'm completely His. Every breath I take is His. Every gift, every thought, every word, um, all of it belongs to the living God. Then that would give shape to and answer all kinds of questions about how we should approach all of the work that God's given us to do. You don't do your work merely to earn a whole bunch of money. But, I mean, by the way, earn, earn a lot of money. You do your work in the first place to honor the Lord. You, you don't do your work primarily to earn the favor of your employer or to avoid the ire of your coworker. You do your first your work in the first place to honor the Lord, to please the Lord, to glorify the Lord. I want to connect that now. Um, one of the great insights of the Reformation, actually made um, most famously and explicitly by Martin Luther, um, recognitions of the Reformation was this kind of reclaiming of the holiness of work. And when I say holiness, I just mean that your, your work actually belongs to God. It's set apart by God. It's been used by God. Um, prior to Martin Luther, there had become, become this weird division happening in the world where you had monks, um, and you had priests, and you had... Um, the clergy, and the weird clergy, uh, that's how I refer to monks, weird clergy, um, they were doing the work of the Lord. They were doing holy work, um, and they were doing holy work largely to make up for the fact that most people had to do secular, mundane work, work that didn't really have much meaning. So you were a milkman, you milk your cows, I guess that's how the milkman is. You were a cow milker, dairy farmer, dairy farmer. Um, you're a dairy farmer. That work is a necessary evil. It's kind of weird. It doesn't really have a whole bunch of meaning. It's absolutely not holy. Don't worry. You have a monk over here. He prays a lot and brews beer. And so he will do all the holy work. And that will make up for all of your unholy work. Um, Luther came and recognized the fact that all of work is done unto the Lord. That all, of, all work belongs to God. That all work is holy. And one of the most famous illustrations he used for this, um, I'm going to extend it beyond his time, is that when you pray that God will provide milk for you, how does God answer that prayer? Well, he calls and ordains that somebody's dairy farm. He calls and ordains that that dairy farmer wakes up at four in the morning or some godless hour. He goes out every morning and he milks the cow. He puts the milk in a jug. Somebody made the jug that the milk goes into. And then God made a truck driver. What fuels the truck? Josh does. So Josh fuels the truck. Josh fuels the truck by making oil. Not making oil. Finding oil. 
causing it to come up out of the ground. How does he get it up out of the ground? Well, he has buddies who sells some stuff to get oil up out of the ground, um, and that gets the oil up out of the ground. And there's somebody who works at a refinery that turns that fuel, that that oil, into fuel, and that fuel makes its way into a gas station where some poor attendant um, has to sit there all day and sell cigarettes. A lot of tickets and gas is there to make sure you get your gas. Um, and then the gas goes in, it goes into the, tr the truck that's carrying the milk. The milk goes to the grocery store, and somebody's job is to carry the milk and put it on the milk shelf, uh, on the shelf. And then God um, has provided a job for you to do by which you can get money. So you can go to the grocery store and you can pay for the milk that you then take home. And now God's answered your prayer for how He would provide for you milk. In other words, all of work is holy. It belongs to God. It's a means by which God actually cares for and provides for people. Parents, I hope you pray often for the salvation of your children. God's sovereign. He saves people in all manner of different ways. What's the fundamental means by which he does it? In all honesty, it's picking up those Cheerios on the ground. Teaching them not to throw the Cheerios on the ground. Teaching them the stories of Jesus and singing them the stories of Jesus and um, waking them up in the morning and caring for them and loving them and telling them about Jesus and disciplining them when they sin. Teaching them about the ways of righteousness and holiness. Bringing them to church to gather with the saints. The work of parenting is holy. It belongs to the Lord. He, he, he actually ordains um, that the work you do becomes the means by which he answers the prayers of God's people. And so work is not a curse. Work is there in the garden from the very, very beginning. It's intrinsic to what we've been made for. You haven't been made for endless leisure. God gave you one day to rest, six days to work. And that's not because he's mean or slave driver. Because he's wired you to go to pick tired. He's made you to work with all your might to serve him with as much skill, with as much integrity, with as much holiness as you possibly can. Alright. Now the last thing I want to talk about in our Sunday school class, I kind of fit two lessons into one because we weren't this is our last week. Um, it's connected to we just talked about work, because at the end of the day. You have to go and work in a world, particularly in a city like Denver, where for the most part, most of you are going to workplaces, working in offices, working in places where um, you as a Christian are in the minority. You're not surrounded by people who share your convictions about God, share your convictions about what it means to be a man or a woman, share your convi convictions about morality, share your convictions uh, about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and his lordship over everything. In other words, you step into a world um, where the presumed center of what's true about the world is largely and predominantly secular. Does that make sense? I'll explain that just a little bit further. When you watch TV, this is the predominant assumptions about the way that the world is and the way that the world works are not Christian assumptions. And they're not neutral. They assume certain things about um, 
what makes the good life the good life. They assume certain things uh, about what a human being is. They assume certain things uh, about what we should attain for, what goodness is, what evil is, what righteousness is, what unrighteousness is, who should be ashamed, who should not be ashamed, who victims are. Like All of this stuff is presupposed in the culture around us, and it's not presupposing um, based on biblical on the biblical narrative or biblical truth, it assumes um, almost the opposite of it everywhere. One of the most important things you can do, parents, with your kids, particularly as they start to get older and move into the teenage years, is help to make what's implicit in the stories they watch, in the commercials that pop on um, during halftime of the football game. Because um, we're all watching football with your kids on Saturdays. Um, the, the, one of the, the, you can help them identify it in billboards when they pass by it. You can help them identify it in the lyrics and music that you're listening to. Um, it, is you can stop. By the way, this will oftentimes ruin all kinds of movies. <laughs> but I think it's one of the most important things you can do. It's implicit in all of those things everywhere around us. It is a narrative about the world, a narrative about what it means to be human. A narrative about what's true and what's false, what's good and what's evil. It's just there, just under the surface, assumed. One of the most important things you can do as a parent is hit pause and say, did you see that? What did that just assume about good and evil? What did that just assume about God? What did that just assume about a good life, a fulfilled life, the kind of life we should aim for. One of the most important things you can do for your kids, and frankly, it's one of the most important things you can do for yourself, is to ask that question all the time. What's being assumed here? In other words, what, what is assumed to be the center, the norm, what's normal about the human life? Because it's everywhere. Even in your workplace. Um, and then this begins to affect even biblical preaching, biblical teaching, biblical narratives about scripture, or, or, or ways of talking about the Bible, or Christian ethics, or Christian theology. And the preachers begin to presuppose that the world really works the way the secularists say it does. The good and evil is really defined the way our secular culture defines good and evil. That the good life is defined accurately by the way that most people understand the good life. And then what they do is they take the Bible and they try to fit it into that presupposed center. And what ends up happening, and it's happening all over the place, in otherwise evangelical churches, is that the words of Scripture, the teaching of Scripture, begins to get redefined and start to conform to what the world already likes, what the world already loves, what the world already presupposes. Have you seen that? Most, well, two easy examples. I don't know how, how, much, how, how long we can go back to 2020 to provide us examples of everything wrong with the world, but it was a great year for that. <laughs> the way that the, the society talked about the nature of justice presupposed a definition of justice 
which actually, according to Scripture, would be defined as unjust. But what did Christians do? They heard the word justice, didn't ask any questions about how it's being defined, and then said, well, we like justice. It's all over the Bible. Justice is a thing that we should care about, right? So then you begin to shape the biblical narrative to what the culture, the unbelieving culture is saying, and now you've redefined the scriptures such that the secular culture and its definitions of the world are central, and the Bible is merely used as a support for what the world's saying. Think about the sign you saw at the Denver airport. Do good, wear a mask. Love your neighbor, wear a mask. Same thing. In fact, we had so many like, explicitly pagan politicians quoting the Bible. Now you're supposed to love your neighbor so that you can get a shot, or you can wear a mask, or you should respond a certain way to COVID protocols. Um, and what did they do? They took the language of the Bible, they took a presupposed kind of secular narrative, they had very little regard for what's true, and then what they did is they used the Bible's language to prop up the, the secular culture's presuppositions about how the world is and what love meant, what justice meant, and what good meant. So what I want to invite you to do is to not do that. <laughs> I want to invite you to something that actually would be more prophetic than you know and doesn't require you to yell at anybody. Um, I, want to, I want you to invite you to assume the center. It's a really, really small phrase. It carries with it the weight of the world. The idea of assuming the center means I presuppose that the Bible sets out for us a normal understanding of how the world works. That the Bible is normative. That the Bible's right. That the Bible's good. That everybody should believe the Bible. The Bible and its teaching and the gospel and the law of God and its way of approaching the world is not kind of the, the property of a small um, sectarian group of people who happen to call themselves Christians and live over here and are trying to figure out how to live next to all these people who don't believe the Bible. Um, and the Bible and Christianity has simply become kind of our, our private restaurant. It's over here and everybody else goes to these restaurants. Instead, I want you to assume that the whole world is one big cafeteria and everybody's eating in the same cafeteria and the right way to understand what the cafeteria is and what it's serving is the Bible. Like, to, to begin to assume that the whole transgender push within our culture it is not just an unfortunate kind of alternative way of doing the world. It's actually insane. It's counter to how God's actually designed the world. It's madness. When we think about a world that murders children and babies, this isn't just a private, moral, political position that we're taking. It's actually the very design of God and the world, and it's insanity and wickedness. For everyone, everywhere, at all times. In other words, assuming the center means that Christianity is not just kind of your personal faith choice and faith path, faith walk. We're here. 
you should respect the choices of insane people who are choosing insane faith walks. They like this. You like this. You like fries. They like tater tots. She likes onion rings. And we're all different. And that's great. And we can live in a world that works that way because the world is largely neutral. And we're just choosing our own little faith walk. It's not the way the Bible describes the world. The Bible describes the world as everybody gets fries. And if she wants to call it an onion ring, she's insane. This is what the world is. This is what righteousness is. This is what goodness is. This is what a man is. This is what a woman is. This is what marriage is. This is what justice is. And the message of the church is not how do we find um, the occasional celebrity who will, um, who, who will be Christian, kind of support and show that we're not crazy. Um, it's not to say, oh, look, the Bible gives you everything you want anyway. No, no the, the call of the Christian community is to live in the midst of the world and to presuppose that this is what is true. This is the book that accurately, the only book that accurately describes what this world is and how we're to live in it. And to, without apology, without softening its message, without trying to make it fit some other paradigm, to stand and to live and to work and to speak as if this is the truest thing in the world and you can't make sense of anything without the words of this book. To think of secular thought as strange and weird and insane. To be scandalized again of the nature of sin, both in your own life and in the society around you. To be scandalized by it. To be really troubled by it. I think this is not normal. This is not how things are supposed to be. This is not how people are supposed to live. This is not how children are supposed to be raised. This is not how people, a marriage is supposed to be defined. This is not how people are supposed to approach money. This is like to, to, to assume that it's normal. Like what every single person on earth uh, in Denver, Colorado should be doing this morning is going to church and worshiping God. That's not just our own little private religious faith choice. It's actually a mandate and an order given to all of mankind. Every single person in this city, if they were living sanely, be at church on a Sunday morning, worshiping the living God, celebrating the fact that their sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ, marveling as they belong to him, and then going to work on Monday, living as his servants in all of the variety of places that we've been called to live. So I wanted to end this whole thing with like the kind of change and transformation and salvation we long to see from actually the revival I long to see in our city. It's only going to happen if Christians will stop apologizing for the scriptures, stop assuming the world is mostly right and we're just trying to attack on Christianity and will instead wholesale assume and believe and speak as if this book is true. This book defines the world. And this book defines the world for everyone. Whether they believe it 
or not, whether they hate it or they love it, whether they trust it or despise it, whether they call it names or they accept it and worship God in the light of it. Assume the second. Assume this defines the room that we're in, not just the room you happen to have chosen. All right, I'm going to pray. And uh, thank you for coming to Sunday school early in the Can morning. Can I ask a question? Last four weeks. Uh, yeah. Yes, you can. Uh, thinking about like where we would hope future gener- generations to be, um, our kids, our grandkids, like what, what are measurable uh, measurables of like progress for our grandkids that we should hope for? Yeah. Ge- yeah, two generations from ours. Like, how does that look for an accountant? Someone sells pipes. Um, I think they should hope to be a means of producing good fruit in all the companies that they're in. And by good fruit, I mean integrous fruit. Good fruit, I mean fruit that produces more fruit, produces wealth. Um, I mean fruit that actually shifts, (coughs) potentially shifts the whole culture of a company. I mean fruit that, um, so that those, the people around them, Ask what must this person believe to be true about the world, that he works this way, that he speaks this way to people. <coughs> um, I don't totally understand the question. Like, I don't know the scope of your question is massive, so I don't know yeah. which aspect to get into. But like, for our city, there would be more churches. For our city, that, that we wouldn't educate our kids in a, in a way that assumes a different center than the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, in a city that progressively moves toward acknowledging the Lordship of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess to clarify, I thought a lot about the, the Christian education point and the <coughs> seeing more churches and, and that. And so yeah. I think the what that looks like in your work or the yeah. lives of your grandkids. Like, I think it looks like entrepreneurs who start conscientiously Christian companies that, that, that abide by Christian principles. Yeah. Um, that really believe like the best way to do work. The ways outlined in Scripture, according to the righteousness and the justice and the, and the mercy that's established in Scripture, and saying we want our company to be modeled this way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it looks like so. It looks like starting stuff, and I think it also looks like influences in that direction. So, um, whatever degree of voice and humility you've got. Um, and then what happens after 
curse is uh, that work that you've been called to do. It's going to bear fruit. It's now, in addition to bearing fruit, it's going to bear thorns and thistles. Um, in addition to bearing fruit, there's going to be ground that just refuses to bear fruit. Um, or bears fruit slowly. Or bears fruit painfully. Or bears fruit um, um, uh, in a way that causes more sweat to accrue on your brow to make it um, to come. And so, uh, with, with that understanding, I would say, one, never, never begin to think that work is futile, even when it's hard, even when it doesn't seem to be producing much traction. Now, on the second hand, um, look at the the work required to get fruit out of the earth, get, look at the work required to make work happen, um, to make fruitfulness happen, and understand that it's by design in this age um, supposed to be hard, supposed to be difficult. Um, God doesn't, doesn't want a humanity still corrupted by sin to be able to build whatever it wants in the world with ease. Um, so the curse is almost this, it, it, it is this, I think, not just almost, it is a mechanism. Um, it's like a, a governor. It's like if you put a governor on a 16 year old car. So I don't want to take part of the 55, um, otherwise things are going to get out of hand. Uh, the curse is almost like a governor put on the engine commanders to say, actually, I'm going to slow this whole deal down um, so that they'll just do whatever they want and build this whole society that's so deeply corrupted by wickedness and sin. Um, there's no light there. is several talks. Um, I mean, this is like a whole class, and I'm actually um, talking to Sarah Wiley, calling from them because he does he talk about this stuff all the time. So I, I see two questions in there. I'll just do both. Um, first is, I think the, the overarching narrative of Scripture is regarding the city. So I think God is moving humanity into a garden city. Um, that's a uh, great book on that. It's called Through New Eyes. I think we might have one or two left upstairs. If we don't, you should look it up and order it and read it. Um, you can also look up this lecture by a guy named James Jordan called, I think, From Garden to City, um, which is a fantastic kind of overarching narrative story of the Bible. Um, and, uh, and then the second question you're asking, I think, I think the Industrial Revolution was devastating to our community. Um, and also... Uh, a, a blip that could produce accelerated good in some ways. Um, but it was taken by simple men and used in ways that destroyed the fruitfulness of the home and destroyed certain relationships and the way that even father, relationships, father, children, father, sons, those all that kind of stuff. I think there's all kinds of deleterious effects that have come from kind of our modern approach to work and labor um, that were not. We're not there in the Old Testament, and I pray, I think, and I even see, I think there's signs of it happening now, of a shift happening um, 
in terms of how work is done and the relationship between work and home and all those kinds of things. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how they evolve and grow in the coming decades, um, at least the decades of life. Um, so uh, I think there was, um, there's a great book called The, the Household and the War for the Cosmos. C.R. Wiley, can they want to think more about how uh, the nature of modern work has transformed um, our relationship to what the home is and what the home is meant to be, um, and how the God's design household is meant to be this engine um, that drives industry, this engine that drives fruitfulness and productivity in life. It's not meant to be just the place you retreat and work. It's meant to be um, really the foundation for um, the production of wealth and society. And we've totally outweighed that, and that's what we this thing I talk about now. Um, anyway, we've ended up creating um, really a whole other sphere. So I think the, the spheres are the realms of authority that God has made on the earth. You have the family, you have the church, and you have the magistrate. And um, we, in the last 150 years, have kind of invented this new one called the industry, <laughs> or the company, or the um, so you have these large companies that are exercising increasingly terrifying amounts of authority in the world. Um, and so the house has been left out of one of its original designs, which is to produce economic fruit. Um, you have to leave the home, go to work somewhere else, and you come home and sleep. And uh, that's what he's talking about. If you want to learn more about that, I would love to talk about it, but I'm going to stop now. All right, let me pray. Father, may you bless us now as we gather with the saints to worship you. Um, we celebrate your goodness and your mercy and your grace, that we would be consecrated, wholly belong to you, that we would learn from your word, um, that we would receive uh, a new child into this community, this fellowship, uh, as a member, uh, baptizing, and, uh, and Lord, that you would build your church today and help us to be faithful with us as the good and glorious reign of Christ as we worship. Amen. Amen. Amen.